this. So let's, let's hop into the word. Luke chapter number five is where we're going to be reading from today. And I'm going to read verses one through 11. So this is Jesus early in his ministry, and he's kind of building his team is what he's doing. He's kind of looking ahead uh, at what his goals are for the next few years of his life and his ministry, and he's, he's gathering some, some guys around him to go, hey, let's, let's do this, this missional life together. So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse number 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, on Jesus, to hear the word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. So the fishermen's boats were there on the shore. They're washing their nets because they're done. They're finished for the day. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Uh, I love that. Jesus, of course, uh, created the laws of physics. So he knew here, even though physics wasn't really a thing, that if he preached from the middle of the water, his voice would be amplified. Little side note there, guys, um, on, on the water surface. Verse number four. And when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. So Jesus preaches a message. After his message, he does this incredible miracle of of bringing fish to these boats. But when Simon Peter saw what had happened, saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. They were astonished at the miracle. And when you see the miracle, you realize who really is uh, among you, who really Jesus is. At the catch of fish, they'd taken, and so also were James, John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Or some translations say, I will make you fishers of men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. The story It's like the dream church ministry moment. Jesus had finished his sermon. He came to the end of his message, the crescendo of his message, and he does a miracle right before their eyes. And now comes the big invitation that all of us preachers kind of end towards. We'll do that here in a few minutes, guys. A little spoiler alert. And at the end, Simon falls to his knees at the feet of Jesus because he was so impacted by what he realized about Jesus. And in repentance, he, he shockingly gives his life to Jesus right there. Jesus, but Jesus' response is an interesting one, and this is where I'm going to dive into a bit in this message. Jesus doesn't say what I often say at the end of my messages. He doesn't say, repeat this prayer after me, Simon, and you're going to go to heaven. Instead, Jesus gives Simon an invitation to join his work on earth. What's the missional life about? Well, that's what we're diving into. Jesus says, I will make you a fisher 
of men. We often make this statement from Jesus like, oh, look at, look at Jesus. He made, a, he made like a cute little pun. You know, Peter was a fisher, man, and now he says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But that was a common idiom used that day, and, and Simon knew exactly what Jesus meant by that. You see, Jesus was a rabbi, and we see him as, as Savior, and of course he is Savior. But he was also a rabbi. He was a teacher, a Jewish teacher. And Jewish teachers often called followers. They called disciples. And that call looked like this. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. The ultimate goal of any disciple was to become a rabbi themselves. Or to use a common phrase of the day, a fisher of men. Jesus' invitation to James, John, and Simon in this passage was not to eternal life. Stick with me, Ramp Church. It was to be with him. It was to follow him. It was to become like him. It was to do the things he does. And then it was to invite others to do the same. Now, I'm genuinely not trying to be provocative, but I do wonder if we've minimized Jesus' message. Not saying eternal life isn't part of the package or the message or Jesus' mission. I'm simply wanting us to reflect on it if it was as central to his message as we've made it today. It seems Jesus is inviting Simon, James, and John into a bigger story than simply heaven. What's the harm in putting so much focus on heaven, you may wonder? I mean, compared to eternity, the Bible is clear about time, the time we live in. It's a breath, right? It's like grass. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. One lifetime is like a passing thought in the scope of cosmic history. In the light of the incomparable weight of eternity, shouldn't it be, shouldn't eternity be our primary focus. And I, of course, agree with the biblical stance on this. No matter how important and weighty and vast the problems I'm facing today, the problems you're facing today, look, they don't even tip the scales when compared with eternal consequences. No matter how rich and satisfying and pleasurable and rewarding I may find life today when compared with eternal joy and satisfaction, there's no contest. Eternity wins comparison with time. So I'm not knocking eternity. We need it, Ramp Church. We need eternity. We've got to understand that. But the mission of life is bigger than that. We need to be reminded that God will come with mercy, with justice, with loving kindness to judge the living and the dead. That's that's eternity, okay? He'll declare his judgments. They alone will be the final unredeemable effect on yours and my life. His judgments. He'll declare his judgments to those who have recognized God's true nature and work in the person of Jesus, to those who have embraced the necessity of Jesus' death for their own brokenness, for my brokenness, for your brokenness, God will declare every barrier removed between them and their ultimate desire, knowing and being known by Jesus. That's our promise in eternity. That's your promise. That's my promise if we put our trust and our hope in what Jesus has already done for us. To those who choose their own way, maybe we'll call that salvation by success. I call that the bootstrap gospel. 
I just pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Maybe salvation by good works. I call that the leave the world a better place gospel. Maybe you think that it's enough. I'm just going to leave my stamp on the world. I'm just going to leave it a little better than when I found it, and that's enough. Or maybe it's salvation by authenticity. It's the gospel of self-actualization is what I call it, where I'm going to live my own reality. I'm going to live my own truth. Or maybe whatever your gospel category is, to those God reveals the futility and the temporality of these pursuits. In judgment, when compared with surpassing success, goodness, and authenticity of the eternal being, God's final judgment reveals these pursuits for the fraud that they are. Eternity matters. It matters for you. It matters for me. Let's not mistake it. And if you've yet to shift the object of your deepest longing to Jesus, or maybe you've never even thought about your deepest longing or what you're seeking in life, let me be clear. You're pursuing lesser things today. And your temporary pursuits determine your eternal condition. Your temporary pursuits determine your eternal condition. So if eternity is so important and weighty, why didn't Jesus make it more central to his message and invites? Okay? Stick with me here. I think the answer is quite simple. Because God is up to something Now, on earth. This next chapter, the missional life that we're entering is about that something. We're calling this chapter the missional life because that something is the mission of God. God has a mission, and it's bigger than heaven. It's more imminent than a distant eternity. It, of course, includes heaven, but it also includes work to be done now through your life and our community. It includes acts of justice, systemic change, geopolitical shifts for good, but it also includes gatherings of people experiencing God, being filled with the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Just as important, it includes healthy families. It includes your career and calling, how you choose to use and invest your finances and your time, and even the simple way you live your life. It's all included in the mission of God. God works in and through all of these things, declaring his goodness and provision, his mercy and his love, and he also works through them to mend broken lives, restore hostile relationships, redeem what's been lost, build networks and systems and community of life. When we minimize what God's up to and about in the earth, When we make heaven and eternal life the sole end of God, it of course is an end, but we make it the sole end of God, we can miss what God is up to today. Faith can be reduced to my heavenly ticket, my eternal airfare. Thank goodness that's been paid, we say to ourselves. Life is moving pretty quickly, and I need to make sure everything's in order. Sort my pension, purchase a home, start a savings account for my kid's university. Oh, oh yeah. Heaven, better make sure the afterlife is covered. Honey, do you know a good church nearby where we could take the kids? I know it's inconvenient on Sunday mornings, but it'll be good moral teaching for the kids, and I need to make sure we secure our eternity. Whew, what a relief. Got that sorted. Surely there's more to God's mission than that. Surely there's more to what God's up to in the earth 
than making sure our eternity, our eternal airfare is paid for. Let's come back to Luke's story, what we just read, Jesus' invitation to his followers. The invitation he gives doesn't mention eternity. God's mission may end in eternity with a new heaven, a new earth, but it very much starts here and now on earth in Manchester, in your neighborhood, your street, your house, your family, your life. Now, today, 1144, 15 seconds, 16 seconds, 17 seconds, 18, now, right now, What if I told you that what God is up to is so much bigger than you've ever thought before? The missional life. What if evangelism and you sharing your faith is only a part of it? A vital part, perhaps the most important part, but just just a part. What if to join God's work, to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, has as much to do with your secular job, your nuclear family, your hobbies, your interests, your finances your investments, your pace of life, your free time, your passions, the entirety of your life than you've considered before? What if your job is more than a source of income? What if God's already at your workplace? What if God's already working at your workplace? And if you could have eyes to see it, you can join in what he's already doing. You can be a part of the mission of God. This chapter, the missional life, is about exploring God's work. What is he up to? How can I see it? And how can I be a part? This will be the most immersive chapter we've ever done at Ram Church. Our speaking team will be introducing each topic on Sunday mornings and will be diving deeper on Wednesday nights. Actually, Wednesday nights aren't a rehash of Sunday mornings. Many times our communities are that. Um, They'll pick up where Sundays end in many ways. So a little insider tip, you, you get some decent teachings on Sunday, I hope, right? But the transformative work, this, this chapter, it's going to happen through ramp communities on Wednesday nights. If you've yet to sign up, just want to encourage you to do that. Communities is where the magic is going to be happening this chapter. To get started, let's look at a quote by Chris Wright. This is, this is incredible. Look at this. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church, Wright says, as that God has a church for his mission. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. You see, God's been up to something since the creation of the world. He's an active God. He, 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 he didn't create the cosmos and, like us, just sits down and Netflixes and watches it unfold before him, right? It's not like he's just, like, tuning into different countries, different days, and like, checking out what's going on. The dude is involved. He had a plan. He had a purpose from the beginning, And even when you and I screw things up, a.k.a. Adam and Eve, it only took a couple chapters, ladies and gents, for them to screw it all up. Even in light of that, God's mission continues. What is the mission? Well, we're going to spend the next 
10 weeks unpacking that. That's how big and deep and vast it is. But I'm going to give you a little insight today in the ways that I believe we've minimized the mission of God. So it's, so it's not so much that we've gotten it all wrong. If that's what you leave thinking today, that's not what I mean to say. What I do mean to say is sometimes I feel like we've reduced what he's all about. So I want to talk about three ways. There's, there's many ways we could talk about it, but I want to talk about three main ways that we've minimized the work of God. Let's look at the first way we've minimized. I feel like the first way is we have minimized God's mission into conversion when he's really been about kingdom citizenship. We've minimized God's mission in conversion. When we've convert, when we're converted to a new religion, we adopt different beliefs. Maybe those beliefs have certain traditions and practices. That's not bad, of course. But if Christianity is kept at conversion, we're not joining God's mission. We're simply affirming new beliefs. Stick with me. To set conversion into a bigger mission of God looks like moving from conversion to citizenship. As Christians, we're no longer simply citizens of earth. We're dual citizens, able to live in God's eternal kingdom now while also having earthly residency. What does this mean for us? It means the realities of God's kingdom are available and entrusted to you and I now. We're called to live in and reveal these realities to the world around us. This means we're not simply believing God will make things new someday, but that his kingdom realities can be realized now. Though not fully, at least felt and seen in glimmers and windows. It's Jesus' prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. This is, this is an insight into Jesus' message in ministry. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and he was announcing the good news about the kingdom. Say kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Stick right here. Good news. That, that word maybe in your Bible, if you open up your Bible to read this with me, said gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. And we often think when we're preaching the gospel, when we're telling someone the good news of Jesus, when we think about it in our own mind, we have a very clear idea about what that is. It's, it's well, you know, Jesus died for your sins and you pray and you receive that and you live for eternal life. And that's great. That's part of it. That's maybe conversion if you believe that, but let's expand it to, to God's mission, God's kingdom vision, and let's look at even what this word good news means. The word good news or gospel is, is this word, euangelion. Say that with me, euangelion. Good, good job. You're learning some Greek here, guys. And it, it literally means the announcement of the reign of a new king. This word was not just used in the Bible in ancient Roman times, it was understood to mean the, the announcement of the good news is not just any old good news. The good news of Euangelion is that a new king has come to reign. Why is it good news? Why is this good news? Well, because Jesus is, is the most incredible king you and I can imagine. The gospel and the good news of the kingdom is the announcement of 
of God's rule and reign over all of creation. Now, we're going to unpack this in, in the series, in this chapter that's coming ahead of us. We're going to unchap, un, 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 uh, uh, unpack it a bit deeper a, a couple weeks from, from now. But for now, I want you to understand that even, even our understanding of gospel is bigger than just conversion. It isn't this, this idea of, of exchanging belief systems. We're actually enter into, entering into the government of God, his idea that he wants to rule and reign in the midst of all of creation. Look at this, Philippians chapter 3. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God's their belly and they glory in that shame, in their shame. They're with minds set on earthly things. He's comparing a different audience to the audience of Christians, of Jesus' followers. And this is what he's saying. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What's what's one of the ways I feel like we minimize the the good news of what what Jesus is about? What I think is one way we minimize the mission of God, what God is up to in the earth, I believe we, we, we minimize God's kingdom into conversion. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and he tells them, go and announce that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons, give as freely as you have received. Why does Jesus give them these specific commands? To, to cleanse spiritual beings, uh, people uh, of oppression of spiritual beings and heal diseases because that's the way things are in his kingdom. There's, there's no demonic forces in heaven in Jesus' ultimate rule and reign where it's, his, his authority is fully realized right now. There's no sickness in heaven. And what happened when Jesus exercised that kingdom on earth is things came into alignment with his will his reality, his desire. What's he doing now? What is he on about now? He's about exercising that reality through your life and through my life. But I'm just giving you a little windows because we're going we're gonna to unpack this for the next 10 weeks. The first way we, we minimize God's mission on earth is by minimizing kingdom citizenship into conversion. The second way is this. second way is this. We've minimized the mission of God into being a Christian. I'm going to unpack that a bit so you know what I mean by that. When the call of God, the mission of God is discipleship. We've minimized the mission of God into being a Christian when God's idea is about discipleship. You know, the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. And it's generally not in a very inspiring context. It's not necessarily negative. It's just not inspiring when it uses it. But, you know, the word disciple is used 269 times. In the New Testament, the New Testament's idea of what it means to be a Christian is more apparent in the word disciple than what we often think of when we use the word Christian. The word disciple is this. It's, it, it's, it's a Greek word that's, that is pronounced matites, matites. Can you say that? Matites. See, you're going to be Greek scholars by the time this is over. It means a, a disciple, a follower, a student. The best word that we can understand it is an apprentice. It's an apprentice. 
It, it is someone, we, we, even, we even have that vernacular in our modern culture where if, if there's a trade that I want to learn, I can, I can get some book work done by that, right? I can learn, I can study in university. But ultimately, to learn a trade, I need to go watch somebody who's doing that. And, and that is the invitation that Jesus is giving us. It's not to change out belief systems alone. There is a renewing of our mind. Thank you, Romans chapter 12. But it is also what I said at the beginning. It's being with Jesus. It's becoming like Jesus. And it's learning to do what he does. That's discipleship. When we use the word discipleship, we tend to think of it as something that happens to me. Like a program at church. Some of us, maybe we've even left faith families before. Moved on to different faith families because... We're like, yeah, um, they just didn't have that great of a discipleship program, right? We think of that, that, that word as, as a verb, but you know the word's not a verb. It's a noun. The word is a noun. It's not something, discipleship is not something that happens to us. It's something that happens, it is something that you are. Discipleship, to, to, to say, um, I just felt like I wasn't discipled. That's like to say, I just felt like I wasn't Christianed. The, the, word, the word isn't even meant to be used that way. A disciple is something that I am. I am a follower of Jesus. I am an apprentice of the Son of God. I am someone who, who, who is studying the life of Jesus. I want to be like him. I want to do the things he does. I want to be with him. That's the invitation of discipleship. Look at this in Luke chapter number 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Sometimes I think this describes many of our church gatherings. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. You see, it's it's one thing to travel with Jesus. It's a whole other thing we're going to read about in a second to be discipled. Sometimes we confuse the two and we think just because I'm traveling with him... I'm, I'm, I'm Matt to taste. I am, I'm, dis, I'm a disciple of him. But just because I'm with him, just because I'm traveling with him, doesn't mean I'm actually living like him and doing the things he's doing. And that's what discipleship means. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This is some weird stuff. This is some weird stuff. Of course, Jesus isn't talking about hate in in, in the way we we think about it. He's He's trying to paint a picture and going, if in comparison to your devotion for me, Every other love doesn't look like hate. You're not yet complete in your discipleship. Now, this this isn't meant to be condemning. I'm not complete in my discipleship. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm in this journey with you. There are facets of my life that I'm seeking to fully give over to God. That The Holy Spirit reveals to me all truth. And I'm wanting to, God, yes, I want to give my life to you. I want to give my heart to you in every single way, every single day. But many of us, this isn't even a pursuit. I mean, it's not even an object, the difference between these two things. We're not even thinking this is part of it. We're thinking, well, I prayed a prayer. I'm good, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I mean, every once in a while I'll tell somebody about my faith, so I'm doing good Christian things. But is, have we maybe reduced what God's up to? 
from this call of discipleship down to like, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I attend church. Are we traveling with Jesus? Or, I mean, am, am I his disciple? I think unless you see his call from this perspective, some things that he says like this, they just don't make sense. You just got to like cut them out of your Bible. Like, I don't know, I don't know why he said that. I just ignore it because it doesn't make any sense. Because my idea of Christian is like, you know, I do Christian things. I, I don't cuss as much as I used to. You know, I mean, I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And I, I, that's, pretty, that's pretty different than what Jesus is talking about here, isn't it? It's not traveling with Jesus, being my disciple. Whoever does not carry their torture device. Yikes. Whoever does not carry their... What's what Jesus is saying? This, this was his mission on the earth, to carry a cross. What's Jesus saying here? Whoever doesn't live the way I live. That's what Jesus is saying. That, that's, an identi- that's an identifier of his journey. It's an invitation. What he's saying is disciples aren't just people who believe in Jesus. Disciples are people who follow Jesus. And the nature of following is Jesus is going somewhere. That's what it means to follow. I'm I'm here. He's traveling. He's going. I'm with him. And where did he go? He went to the cross. And let's go to the next part of this verse and follow me. Unless they do that, they can't be my disciple. You can travel. You can come along for the ride, but you're, you're, not, you're not my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Then he goes, he goes on to saying, suppose you want to go to war. Someone wants to go to war. Don't you count the cost if you have enough to win? Why, why is Jesus talking about cost here? Because he's, he's trying to say discipleship is costly. Following means uh, not only am I going somewhere with Jesus, I'm leaving something. Because I'm not where I was. Maybe I'm not where I want to go yet. I'm not either. You and I are on this journey together, but I know who I'm following. I'm not following maybe some people I was following before. Following is costly. And Jesus is saying, you actually need to weigh this. It's not as simple as just saying a prayer. I'm not saying those prayers aren't valuable. And our prayers where we dedicate our life to God. I've seen people's lives, everything change with a prayer. And today, if you, that Romans tells us, if you call out to God, you will be saved today. It, I mean, I'm not saying it takes like you, you've got to go, you know, remortgage your house. And that's what it takes to Jesus to accept you. What I'm saying is that initial decision is just that. It's an initial decision. And guess what? Today, I've got to pick, pick up my cross again. And I've got to re-say that decision just the same way as today I've got to express to my wife, Stacy, the expression, the demonstration of the covenant I made with her almost 15 years ago, here in a couple of weeks, 15 years. Come on now. <laughs> 15 years ago, I made that covenant. But I, I promise, if I never showed up around the house, if I didn't invest in our relationship, it doesn't matter how much I meant it 15 years ago. Um, what she would be saying if she wrote this verse was, um, unless you do these things, you cannot be my husband. I mean, that's just, it, it wasn't about that initial decision, was it? That was necessary. That was important. In the, in the words of Jesus, you move from death to life. You're a new, you start the process of new creation. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places at the moment you place your trust in Jesus. But it's just the beginning. Why? Because Jesus is up to something in the earth now. And it doesn't just have to do with your eternity. It has to do with...
today. Look at Luke 9, 23. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. The second way we've minimized the mission of God is we've turned Christian We've turned Christian. We've said that's all of it when it's actually about discipleship. It's about apprenticeship to Jesus. It's about following the way of Jesus. The third way is this. We've looked at the mission of God as affecting my spiritual life, not realizing that it actually has to do with all of my life. I love this parable Jesus says in Matthew 13. Look at this. Matthew 13, 33. Jesus is telling a stream of parables in this chapter. He says, as Matthew told them still another Jesus told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like this. When when, when you're just getting to know something, isn't it great when someone uses an analogy of something you do know to help you understand something you don't know? That's what Jesus is doing right here. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour. why, Why does he use the measurement? Because he's trying to say there's a lot of dough and a little bit of yeast. And a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Your faith may start as conversion. Maybe your faith starts as a decision. Maybe your faith starts as, uh, your understanding starts as a Christian. But for you to really do this Jesus thing right, it permeates every facet of your life. What is the journey of spiritual formation? What is the journey of discipleship? It's where I take that work that God gave me that's a seed. Jesus says that earlier. It's like a mustard seed. And I let that seed grow and permeate, bear fruit and, 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 and put roots down in every facet of my life. Kuiper said it like this. Look at this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What's Kuiper saying? When you say yes to Jesus, he doesn't intend to only have a facet. When you say yes to Jesus, he has a vision and a mission for every facet of our lives. This is not just about your spiritual life. Ooh, I just want to I just want to enhance my spiritual life. I just, you know, I just come to realize life just isn't about the natural, you know, there's got to be more to life than this. That's maybe that's where it starts. That's a good that's a good question. But there's more to life. There's than just realizing, "Oh, I want Jesus to awaken a spiritual faith in me." He wants to permeate Every facet. What is God up to? He's not just up to awakening people's spirits. He has everything in mind. If you're wondering his ultimate mission, look at Ephesians chapter 1. God doesn't leave this stuff mysterious for us. We've just got to connect the dots sometimes. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. Thank you, Paul, for making it plain, because sometimes I don't really realize what, what God's up to. This is the plan. At the right time, God will bring everything, say everything, everything. not just your spiritual life, not just Sunday from, from, from 11 to 1230, not just the time I'm in prayer or I'm in communities, everything, everything. He'll bring everything together 
under the authority of Christ everything in heaven. Just having just spiritual stuff, just ethereal, just disembodied stuff. No, no, no. Everything in heaven and what? All of your life, all of my life. You know, God's ultimate plan, the mission he's about is redeeming heaven and earth. I I love what N.T. Wright says. He says, heaven's a big deal, but it's not the end of the world. Right, because God's about redeeming heaven and earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Everything you and I have lost will be restored in the new creation. God is up to something, and it's a lot bigger than just your spiritual life. It's whole life immersion. Do you know when you give your life to God, there is, there is no longer sacred and secular? Everything in your life is sacred. Everything in your life is being touched by God. This is the difference between the Old Testament and Jesus. In the Old Testament, when, when something unclean touched something that was clean, the thing that was clean became unclean. But see, in the New Testament, Jesus was the one who was clean, and when he touched the leper... Jesus did not become leprous himself. Jesus did not become unclean. The thing that was leprous became clean. That's the new covenant. That is the new creation. When the clean touches the unclean, the unclean then becomes clean. There's even some theologians that believe the reason Jesus was baptized is not because he needed baptism, but because the water needed saving. Jesus purified the water so that everyone who came after him when they got baptized, what the work of purity that he did became pure for all of us. Jesus does not just have our spiritual life in mind. It is whole life immersion. I know you've thought that God's up to ministry, and that can only happen in church. God's not up to ministry alone. He's up to mission. He has a whole life immersion. So I know this is about God's plan, but many times at this point in the story, hey, those are really cool grandiose stories that preach as well. But this question a lot of times pops up to me, at least me, maybe maybe it's just me. What's in it for me? I mean, what's in it? That's cool. God's up to a mission, but I mean, what's in it for me, guys? And there's three things that I'm going to talk to you uh, that it's in it for you because Jesus is not opposed to this question. Do you know his disciples, the 12, like the closest, they ask the same question. Hey, what's what's in it for me? I just want to give you three things. There's many things. Let, Let me just give three things that are relevant to us today. First one is this, Stability. That sounds crazy. Stability. How do I know that? Um, Glad you asked. James chapter 1, verses 5 and 8. The opportunity of the missional life is an offer for stability that comes from single-mindedness. Look at James 1. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God. He will give it to you. He'll not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. What happens when you rescue your faith out of a facet of your life and let it permeate every facet of your life? You find stability. All of a sudden, there's a singleness of mind. Right now, you're you're in that Galatians. You're at war with your faith, uh, with your spirit and your flesh. There's this war going on. But but, what James is saying right here is, let's step in the place of, of undivided loyalty, complete devotion to the plan of God and the will of God. In that place, we will find stability. 
What's, what's in it for you and I when, when, we, when we join the mission of God's stability? Number two, number two, true life, true life. Oh, this is beautiful. Look what Matthew 16 says, true life. Whoever would save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's Jesus trying to say? This is what he's saying right here. Jesus' invitation is to find our life as we lose our life in God's mission. Why? Why do we find ourselves in him? Because this is, what, this is what the New Testament says, that you are hidden in Christ. You're not out somewhere on some pilgrimage. You don't go find yourself somewhere. You're in Jesus. That's where you are. You're hidden there. That's where you find your sense of satisfaction, your sense of worth, your sense of identity. It's rooted in him. Why, why when you give your life for what he's on about, do you actually find your life? Because you are in him. You were created to worship. You were created to love. That's why it feels so fulfilling to you. When you give without receiving back, why do you feel great about that? Because you were created to do that. That's the mission of God. You and I were created to do that. True life is the second thing you find. Number three, the third thing, to know God. Really, this could be the only thing. Do you know that, that the creator of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, has given you an invitation to know him? I mean, I, that could be enough. I mean, that's mind-blowing enough right there, right? I mean, just think of anybody, anybody on, on this planet that if you had the opportunity to meet them, to go, on, to go to a meal with them or for them to mentor you, like who would that be? Then multiply that times infinity, Creator of the universe has invited you into knowledge of him. Look, 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 Paul got this. The penny dropped for Paul. Philippians 3.8. Indeed, Paul said, I count everything as lost. This dude was mega successful, okay, in life. It's not like he was, he was like a slouch just trying to like, oh, yeah, Jesus, like, pick me up. No, this dude counted all of it as lost because of what, what does he call just knowing Jesus? Surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss. What is that? I mean, he's giving up his life to be part of the mission of God. Of all things and count them as rubbish in comparison. In comparison. He's not saying family's not valuable. He's not saying these things aren't valuable. But but in comparison, he counts them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ to know God. I love what Leslie Newbegin says. It's one of my favorite quotes. Look at this. Uh, Leslie Newbegin says, I think that the deepest... Motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is. Do you want to know Jesus more? Do you know sometimes where Jesus is hiding? In the poor? In people that that have needs that he's asking you to fulfill that they can't repay you? That's where he's hiding. He's over there. You're wanting him to like pour liquid gold out of the ceiling, like some spiritual experience, and those are relevant. We believe in those here at Ramp Church where there's a, there's a divine encounter, but sometimes you encounter him in the face of someone who you are on mission with God to reach. And sometimes your desire for mission, the deepest motive actually for mission, is not because you want to be great, not because you want to have a ministry, not because I want, I mean, all that stuff's kind of gross, isn't it, when compared to just wanting to be with Jesus, the greatest motive for joining the mission of God is actually just to know God more. 
And there's nothing like getting to know someone uh, just by working with them, just by joining them and what they're up to in the earth. And I can tell you this, whatever church you're from, I just want to just, maybe you're, you're part of another local church. Every local church is a part of the mission of God. I just want to encourage you, get plugged into the, to, to the church God's joined you to, join the mission there. But for those of you that are in Ramp Church, sometimes this looks so practical. I think this next, this next season, it looks like really diving deep into this community season. Uh, band, you can come because we're, we're about to pray. But it looks like diving into this community season. We're going to talk about more practically through this season of communities, this chapter of Ramp Church what it actually looks like in practice. We're going to talk about your career, your family, just acts of justice. We're going to get deep in some theology behind the scenes. But really what I want to hit home right now is that this invitation is open to anybody. Anybody. You know in Jesus' day, I'm going to finish with this story. Jesus' day, only the best and the brightest were invited to apprentice with the rabbis. Only the best and the brightest. I can tell you who wouldn't have been invited, some random fishermen who were just out fishing and could not catch a fish to save their life. Okay? Rabbis were known to go through the Jewish schools and pick the best and the brightest students. And then at the end of that process, if they really performed well, they would hear their rabbis say, you did it, therefore, go. You can now become fishers of men. You know the beautiful thing about Jesus? That, he, that the invitation to join his mission is open to all of us. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how far you feel like you've fallen, how much you've screwed up. It doesn't even matter your success. He really doesn't care about your resume. Sorry. I mean, it has relevance if you're looking for a job. But if you're wanting to join the mission of God... What he wants is he wants a hungry heart that can recognize as Simon did. Whoa, in light of your glory, in light of your ability, in light of your nature, just who you are, I'm nothing in comparison. Why would you receive from me? Please get away from me. And when Simon had that heart of humility, Jesus' response to him wasn't, you're right. It was, no, no, no. (laughs) Come to me. I want you to follow me. I want you to be with me. And I want you to join my mission. And you're going to be enlisted in an adventure that's beyond your wildest dreams.